Good morning. Today we reach Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21, where Jesus is about to teach his disciples and us a lesson on faith. And what we'll see through this passage is that faith can accomplish great things, things that would otherwise be humanly impossible. So let's read Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind of this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. This uh, event is also recorded in two other Gospels, but I wanted to look at also the longer encounter, or the more detailed encounter, in Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. <clears throat> it reads, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when he saw him, and immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him greeted him, and he asked the scribes, Why are you discuss What are you discussing with them? Then one from the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I have brought you my son, who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And so he said to his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and he came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. The passage is the beginning of a new section in the book of Matthew. Throughout chapter 17 through 20, the Lord is going to have a series of instructional lessons for his disciples. And uh, throughout these chapters, there is an, uh, numerous occasions where he reminds them that I am headed towards the cross. He reminds them, I am not always going to be physically present with you. And so the disciples 
need to have these lessons because there is going to be a time where he is not going to be literally walking every step with them. He, he needs them to be um, able to deal with things in these events and these circumstances when he's no longer present physically. So far in Matthew, Jesus has pro- proven himself to be uh, the king. He has shown himself uh, as king, and he's shown them what the kingdom should look like, what the people uh, who are in the kingdom and what they look like. And now he gives his disciples the principles on how the members of his kingdom should live their lives. And so there are many lessons he gives them. The first one is on faith, and that's what we'll be looking at today. There's other lessons on how to live in this world. There's a lesson on humility, a lesson on um, dealing with offenses, a lesson on how to deal with discipline, a lesson on forgiveness, a lesson on marriage and divorce, a lesson on wealth. Another one on rewards and on position. And all of these lessons that we'll read about in the coming weeks tell us how to effectively live our lives as disciples of his. And the first lesson that we come to today is on faith. Now, this passage is, you know, includes a great demonstration of the power that Jesus has. And that in no way should be understated. Jesus is using this healing to demonstrate his power for sure. But there is a much greater purpose than just to simply heal the boy. He is using this healing to teach his disciples, and now us as the readers of this passage, a lesson on faith. And as we go through the next few chapters, we'll realize that Jesus didn't just simply tell them, have faith or forgive others or be humble, but instead he gave them real life examples. He taught them by using real life circumstances and events to illustrate Um, or convey the lesson that he was trying to teach them. Jesus was the master at using life circumstances to bring out spiritual truths. So to summarize what has just happened prior to this event, Peter, James, and John, they have come down from the Mount of Transfiguration where they have seen the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And this is where we get the phrase, a mountaintop experience. And that's where really it comes from. Because Peter, James, and John had this mountaintop experience. And as they descend from the mountain, what a contrast it would have been from where they had just been to what they now see at the base of this mountain. And as they descend, they are met by a multitude of people. In Mark's encounter, it mentions that there the nine other disciples and the scribes were down and, and out Out of this large crowd comes this troubled father who pleads with Jesus to heal his demon-possessed son. And we're first introduced to this man in verse 14 as he's kneeling down before the Lord, pleading with him to do something for his son. He is desperate for help, desperate for the healing of his son. And so he pleads with Jesus. Well, what is he pleading for? What's wrong with his son? His son is demon-possessed, and possessed by a demon who is both dumb and deaf, meaning that the boy can neither hear nor speak. And what's worse is that the boy is suffering tremendously at the hands of this demon, because the demon would constantly throw him into convulsions and seizures where he'd be on the ground, foaming at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, and he became rigid. You can think about some of the worst grand mal seizures possible, except this is something that's not treatable with medication or medical intervention. 
And this boy had been suffering tremendous pain, and he was tortured by this demon. And the heart of the father is just breaking as he watches his son time and time again seizing up from the demons controlled over him. And in Luke's encounter of this story, he mentions that the boy was bruised up constantly from being thrown to the ground and seizing. The father then explains in verse 15 that he often falls into the water and often into the water and often into the fire. The the father would constantly having would have to keep a close eye on him because the seizing would take place anywhere, and he could easily be, um, you know, burned in a fire or he could drown from going into the water. And so, if he's not being observing of his of his son, that would be it for him. And so here we have this bruised, battered boy with probably bru- uh, probably burn marks, uh, constantly being tormented and seized by this demon. And the father is just deeply concerned that this boy will not survive much more if he doesn't find help soon. So, as a side note, this is just so typical of a demon. They're bent upon destruction. They only know how to make a person worse off than when they started. And the father fears for his son's life. He says, you know, (laughs) if I don't find help soon, my son won't be around much longer. And so there's this sense of urgency with which the father approaches Jesus and he says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. Now, at this point, you wonder, well, why didn't the father just bring his son to the disciples for them to cast it out? Well, it turns out in verse 16 that he already done that. So he says, so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And we'll touch on why the disciples couldn't cast out the demon a little bit more later. But for now, all we know is that this man has exhausted all that he's known to do. He has probably talked to all the doctors. He's probably tried all the home remedies he knows. He's probably sought all the advice he could. And now he has gone to the disciples who have been known to be able to cast out demons, and they have in the past, and yet even they can't do it. And so now nothing's working. So the father comes before the Lord, kneeling and begging for mercy on his son. And Jesus responded by saying in verse 17, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. This must be a sigh of frustration for the Lord to hear what the disciples were unable to do. Not because he hadn't given them the power, but because of their lack of faith. This is addressed first to the disciples, Because the disciples, they were faithless. They didn't have genuine faith to believe that they could heal this boy. And this could have easily been said about the father as well, or even the crowds of Jewish people that gathered about Jesus. They were faithless and perverse. They had been uh, surrounded by Jesus' ministry. He had taught them for years about the truth, about how they could enter into a right relationship with God. He even offered them salvation through himself, and yet they didn't accept that offer. They did not believe in him. They chose instead, for the most part, to live in their wickedness and in their sin. And so as Jesus looks out to the crowd, how helpless and powerless and faithless they were to do anything about the circumstances. And yet, standing right in their midst was God with all of his infinite resources and power. And he says about their lack of faith, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? 
How long will Jesus put up with this faithless generation? I mean, what a stark contrast it must have been for him to have left heaven and to have come from that glorious place with angels and his father with him to come to a world that is faithless, has such little faith and such little ability to believe his power and that he is able to do anything. So Jesus then commands the boy to be brought to him. Now, Matthew doesn't really give too much information about this, so we're going to go and look over at Mark real quick to see and fill in some more of those details. Mark 9.20 says, Then they brought the boy to him, and when Jesus saw him, or when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. You see, the demon... He knows that he's shortly going to be cast out from this boy. And so he sends the boy into a strong convulsion. And his body is wallowing on the ground again and foaming at the mouth to the horror of the onlooking crowd. And really the father as well who is helpless seeing this. Verse 21 and 22 says, So he, that is Jesus, asked his father, How long has this been happening? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, did Jesus not know how long this had been happening? I mean, of course he knew, but I believe he was trying to draw out the faith of the father more. You see, this boy, he's been suffering from childhood with the same issue, and the father surely has tried everything he could to help his son. And the father comes to the end of that road when he meets Jesus. And at this point, he doesn't really have much more faith in him. He doesn't have much hope. And after explaining, you know, his son and how he's been acting, he says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus replies, if you can. The father literally uh, had probably tried many times with no avail. And at this point, he is just scraping the barrel when it comes to faith in his son being healed. And Jesus says the question, it's not in my ability to heal, because clearly Jesus can heal. But the question is in the faith of the Father to believe that he can. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You see the conflict in the mind of the father Part of him believes, but the other part is doubtful as well. And I think believers go through this at various points in their lives. We want to fully believe. And even in the midst of our belief, our faith is mixed with doubt and unbelief. I think back to my own life. I think to people that I prayed for for salvation for years. And, you know, I pray for a week and maybe I don't see an answer to prayer. And then maybe I pray for a month for that person's salvation and I don't see an answer to prayer or maybe a year. And then one year becomes five years and five years becomes 10 years and sometimes two decades, three decades. And you don't have the answer to that prayer. And part of me begins to doubt, wondering, is God able to save this person? Will God save this person? And I believe that God is capable of saving, saving them. I believe that God is capable of softening their hearts. But as the years go on, I began to doubt if he ever would. I began to question if God would save them too. And, you know, to my shame, in many cases, the Lord saved them ultimately. He brought them to repentance. 
but my faith at the time was mixed with doubts. And at the time, I could repeat exactly what the Father was feeling. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This could also be uh, expressed in the lives of believers who are struggling with any type of sin. Lord, I know that your word says no temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man. And I know that, Lord, you are faithful and will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I'm able. I know that you're going to provide a way of escape, that I'll be able to bear it. I know what your word says, that my old man was crucified with Christ and that I need to reckon myself dead to sin. I know all of these things to be true. I believe these things. And yet I still struggle with this certain sin. I struggle to believe that I can be fully delivered from it. God, I know that you can give me the power. I know you can help me escape from this sin. But my faith is mixed with doubt that I could ever truly, once and for all, be freed from this sin that I've been dealing with. Other times in our lives, it can be doubts that the Lord will provide for us. You can look back on the track record and see that he's been faithful and we see his provision for us. And yet we get anxious. We get doubtful that he'll be able to do it again tomorrow or in the year from now or a decade from now or in my retirement years. Sometimes we look at the mortgage payment coming up and we think, Lord, how am I going to be able to pay for that? Lord, I don't know how I'm going to have all my bills paid this month. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to have money for uh, to pay the taxes I owe in the coming months. Or, Lord, I'm worried you've forgotten my desire. I want to be married. I want to have kids. Lord, I know you can provide, but, Lord, I, I don't see the answer to my prayer for a husband or for a wife or for the children that I've been desiring. Our faith is mixed with doubts. And we can cry out like the Father, Lord, help my unbelief. We have faith, but what creeps in is our doubts, our anxieties, our worries, our unbelief that he can do what he promises he will do. The Father says to the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What is the unbelief or the doubt that you have in your life? What is it that you say, Lord, I believe this about you, but I'm really having a hard time trusting you fully because of this or that that I worry about in my life? Ask him today to help you with your unbelief that you might fully trust him. The story continues in Mark chapter 9, verses 25 to 26. When Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead. So that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus commanded this demon to come out of the boy. And just then, there was this final convulsion by the unclean spirit upon the boy. And with that, the demon left him. And for the first time since childhood, this boy was relaxed. The convulsions were gone. He was still. So still that some even thought that he was dead. But the Lord tenderly took the boy by the hand, lifted him up, and the boy arose. And uh, he, was he was restored that day back to his father. It's an incredible miracle, again, that shows the power that Jesus can display to the crowds. We've just witnessed demon possession uh, by a boy who is now free of it. He's been restored to a, a normal state, a state that he's not been in for years. 
It's amazing the power of God on full display for everyone to see. It's for everyone to take notice that Jesus is not nearly a man only, but rather he is also the Son of God. He is not just a mere man. He is indeed the Son of God. Well, the disciples, they're perplexed after seeing this, and they say back in Matthew's encounter, Matthew 17, verses 19 and 20, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. The disciples wanted to know, Why couldn't we cast out the demons like you did? Jesus had given us the power in the past, hadn't he? He had given us authority to do so in the past, so what were we missing here? Why could we not do it today? We did it in the past, why not today? Well, Jesus says, because of your unbelief, which really could be better translated, because of your little faith. The biggest problem that the disciples had was they had little faith. They had experienced success in casting out other demons, but as we read, uh, they're now met with a more difficult one. It's more difficult than they're used to dealing with. And so maybe they said something along the lines of, in the name of Jesus, come out of this boy, and nothing happened. So maybe they tried again and said, "Um, in the name of Jesus, I command you, come out at once. But again, nothing happened. And so they must have just shrugged their shoulders and said, well, this one's too difficult for the Lord. That's it. It's just not going to come out. And so they gave up. Their faith essentially ran out. They stopped at that point. And now this really shouldn't be surprising to any of us. Um, There are four other instances in the Gospels where they were rebuked by the Lord for their little faith. The first instance uh, of the disciples' little faith is mentioned when Jesus was delivering the Sermon on the Mount. The message was spoken to the crowds, but also the disciples were there listening. And Jesus says about um, the provisions of God towards us, says, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, the disciples, they could look at the things God provided for them in the past, like clothing or food or a place to sleep or their life and their very breath. They could see his faithfulness in those provisions, and yet they would often worry about whether or not he would be able to continue that that next day or the next year or the next month. They had little faith to trust in him for the future provisions despite seeing his daily provision in the past. And so Jesus has to remind them to not worry, to not be anxious for tomorrow. The second instance where faith is, or little faith is mentioned, was out on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was in a boat with them. He's fast asleep. There arises a severe storm with powerful winds and waves crashing against the boat. And the disciples, they become fearful. And they woke up Jesus saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And he replies in Matthew 8, 26, Why are you fearful, O you little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. You see, it's little faith that caused the disciples to fear the waves when they had the creator of them in the boat with them. They had faith that gave up once they had exhausted all of their human strength to control the situation. It's little faith. Little faith. 
A third instance of little faith was seen again on the Sea of Galilee, where there was another storm. But this time the disciples were alone, and the winds and the waves were raging. And Jesus appears to them on the sea as he's walking towards them on the water. And at the command of Jesus, Peter began to miraculously walk on the water to Jesus. And what happened is that Peter, as he's walking toward Jesus, turns his eye away from the Lord. And he doubted and he began to sink. And Jesus said in Matthew 14, 31, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, Peter had faith up until a point. But once he took his eyes off Jesus and he saw the waves and realized there was no human way to conquer that problem, he ran out of faith. It's another example of little faith. The fourth and final example of little faith is seen with the multitude. The disciples don't have any bread to eat. And in Matthew 16, 8, he says, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? You see, they had little faith when they had little they had faith when there was bread but when it ran out and saw that there was no food coming in they simply ran out of faith he says oh you of little faith <clears throat> you see little faith is the kind of faith that believes in god when you have in hand what you need when what you need is readily available to you we can all easily say i believe in god he is my provider see look i open my cupboard i have food he has given it all to me Look at my bank account. See, I have money there. I believe God. Look at my closet. I see I have clothes for tomorrow. I trust God. Little faith is the kind of faith that believes in God based upon seeing with your own eyes, which is really not faith at all. If I can only trust someone when I have physical evidence to support my faith, then I don't truly have faith. Because what happens to my faith when there is no money in the bank account? What happens when there is no food on the table? What happens when there is no money in my bank account or no uh, physical way to provide that? When there's no human effort that I could do or put into a situation to change it, what then happens? And that's the problem. This is where little faith crumbles. Because little faith can't believe God when it doesn't have in hand the provisions for the things it needs. And as we saw with the disciples, when they couldn't see a way of how there could be provided with for food, or how Jesus could protect them in a moment of crisis, they began to worry. They began to doubt. They became fearful. And you know, we so often can be like the disciples. We have little faith in the ability of God to protect us, to provide for us, when we can't see what's going to happen next. John MacArthur said it best when he said, When faith stops despair begins. When faith stops, doubt begins. When faith stops, worry begins. On the other hand, genuine faith says, I believe God without anything in my hand. I believe God in the middle of a storm. I believe God when there's nothing in my bank account. I believe God when I don't know how I'm going to get the next meal. I believe God when I don't see any human way to achieve what I am praying for. That is what genuine faith looks like. The Lord has also given us many Old Testament examples of what genuine mountain-moving faith looks like. Think about the life of Caleb. It was faith in God's power that allowed Caleb to look at the land of Canaan with its strong and mighty giants and yet say, 
in Numbers 13.30, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. It was faith in God's deliverance that allowed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stand up against a powerful and sinful king who threatened and then made good on his promise to throw them into the fiery furnace if they didn't worship his golden image. It was their faith that allowed them to reply to his threats by saying in Daniel 3.17, If that is the case, our God who is able, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. It was faith in God's protection that enabled Daniel to survive the lion's den. In Daniel 6.23, it says, So Daniel was taken out of the den, with, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he believed in his God. It was faith in God's care that enabled Job, in the midst of trials and personal disaster in his life, to say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Hebrews 11 gives us this detailed list of lives of faith. And it's just a few, but it says that by faith Noah built an ark after being divinely warned of a flood that was going to come in a time in history where it never had rained before. By faith, Abraham left the comforts of his home to follow the Lord to a foreign land, not knowing where he was going, but believing by faith that God would show him. By faith, Sarah conceived a child in her old age. By faith, Abraham then offered up that child to the Lord when he told him to do so, believing that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. By faith, Moses and the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea on dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. And I can go on and on about the men and women of faith in the Bible, but it should suffice to say that God moves powerfully when we believe and place our faith in him. When we have genuine faith, the size even of the mustard seed, we can move mountains. Things that would otherwise be humanly impossible become possible. Now let's look at the passage in Mar Ma sorry, Matthew 17, verses 20 through 21. It says, So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And this verse isn't saying that you need to just have more faith, you need to have stronger faith. Jesus is not asking you to have some amazing faith that is only obtainable by some elite Christians. What it's saying is that if you have genuine faith, as tiny and as small as a mustard seed, then you can and will see God working and moving mountains in your life that you thought were be otherwise impossible to have been moved. Genuine faith can move mountains. And we're not talking about necessarily just literal mountains, though that's quite possible in God's ability to move even a mountain. But rather, this is really more so talking about obstacles that stand in our way or problems that we face on a daily basis. Or just things that we pray about that we have no way of fixing in our own human strength or ability. There is no way we could answer those through our own doing. I remember a specific event in my life where it felt like a mountain-moving experience. And as I tell you this, it may not sound like much, but it literally would have changed the trajectory of my career and my professional life had God not answered it. And uh, the story was uh, a few years back of when I was in 
my initial years of college and I was applying to get into the program of nursing school. I was doing prerequisites to get good enough grades and pretty much you needed all A's to get into the program. And one of the classes I had already taken, I got a B in. And so if I got another B or lower, it was pretty unlikely that I would get in. And ultimately it would have probably ended my chances of becoming a nurse. And so on one of the last classes I had to take, it was a physioanatomy lab class. And there was, uh, unfortunately, an unfair teacher that I had. And her idea of teaching was to give quizzes prior to ever teaching the material because that was the best way to learn. Learn from your mistakes and you won't make it again. And uh, so we often got quizzes on things we had no idea what, what they were. Um, she also improperly graded our midterm. And when we told her about the mistakes and the, uh, the right answers that we got and we should have gotten credit for, she decided that she wasn't going to do anything. She said, nope, it's final. I'm not changing it. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. But um, what's done is done. And I needed to have at least a C or higher in her class to pass the overall class with a B or higher. Um, at that point in time, I had a D minus in her class. And that was it. There was no other quizzes. There was no other tests, no extra credit. There was nothing I could do to fix my score. I had talked to the main teacher about this, about the unfairness. And, you know, he's like, well, you know, I'll see what I can do. But, you know, it, it's... You know, I, I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not your teacher for that one. She is your teacher for that. Even though we share classes, you know, that is her class to grade however she desires to. And in effect, I had failed her class along with many others in my class. And I was convinced that my hopes for being a nurse had ended there. I failed the class and therefore I failed at having a chance of getting into the program as a nurse. And I remember just praying to the Lord. I said, Lord, you've brought me this far. <laughs> you brought me along in this program. I'm trying to apply to become a nurse in this coming quarters. Lord, you know all these things. So far, you've brought me this far. You've given me the grades I needed to do this. I did my best. And I know there's this unfairness. And I know that this shouldn't be right, what she's doing. And I've done everything I can do. Lord, I just pray that if it's your will, that you would allow me to pass this class and get a good grade enough to get into the program. Lord, I know that there's nothing I can do to change my grade. There's nothing more I could add to help. I just pray that you would answer my prayer and allow me to get a passing grade. And the final reports of those classes didn't come out for weeks and, you know, for weeks because it was a holiday in between. And when I looked at my grade, I ended up with an A minus far greater score than I ever imagined seeing on that report card. And the Lord in a miraculous way had allowed me to pass that class and give me the grade I needed to pursue the field I wanted to go to. And to this day, I have no idea how an A minus was even possible to get because my grades even in my lab class weren't that high and my grades in my main class were not that high. So it was completely the Lord's doing and I never questioned the teacher or emailed them back to figure out why it was an A minus. But I had trust that the Lord had answered my prayers. And this story is such a small story in the grand spectrum of life. But as I think back on it, and as I remember how I felt at the time, it felt like a mountain had just been moved before my very eyes. It felt like an obstacle that was in my life 
was lifted out of the way. Jesus says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I should preface this by saying that when we ask in faith of the Lord, we don't come to him as if he is a genie that just grants us anything we wish. In fact, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he gives them this example and then says in the example, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. This means that our prayers must be according to his will, which is why often we pray, Lord, if it is your will, then let this or that be done. But if it's not, Lord, then don't allow it to. And when we pray according to his will, genuinely believing that he will do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, then we can expect to see mountains moved in our lives. I think the problem, though, for many of us, is that we pray once or twice, and if we don't see the answer to our prayers, then we simply give up. We say, well, God isn't interested in this request, and he's not going to answer it. And pretty much we've thrown in the towel as far as our faith is concerned. Our problem is that we don't persist in prayer. The disciples had the same problem. They couldn't cast out the demon, and they may have tried a couple times, but when they couldn't do it, and when Jesus wasn't there this time to help them, they essentially gave up. And I believe Jesus purposely left them there on their own, and I think he gave them this experience to sample or to preview how it was going to be when he was no longer on the earth with them. They needed to learn that when you pray for something or ask God to do something, it isn't always necessarily going to come the first time you ask him. Which is why he includes in verse 21, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Sometimes there are things in life that require persistent prayer before we see God answer them. I think about the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, verses 1 through 5. And the parable reads, Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought to always pray and not lose heart, saying, There was a certain city, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. Then he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will adventure, lest her continual coming she weary me. This widow is exhibit A of what persistence looks like. This king is just hearing her request day in and day out. And he is becoming so exhausted, so weary, so tired of hearing the same request over and over and over again. And he is moved to do so because of her persistence. The point of the parable is not to say that God is, un is like this ungodly king or this uh, sinful king. But rather, it sh it's to show that even if this ungodly king who doesn't fear God or man will attend to the needs of this widow because of her persistence, then how much more will your heavenly father, who loves you, who gives you good gifts, how much more will he attend to the persistence of your prayers and your requests that are brought before him as a child of his? The point I'm trying to make with all this is that little faith doesn't know how to persist in prayer. Little faith throws in the towel after praying once or twice. Persistence in prayer demonstrates genuine faith, that even though I don't see the answer to my prayer right now, 
I believe by faith that I am asking, seeking, and knocking on the door of the only one who can answer my requests. So I'm going to continue in faith, praying and asking until I see God answer my prayers. And it's not that God's not able to answer our requests right away. The Lord is more than capable of answering it immediately if he wants to. If it's his will. But in many cases in our lives, as well as the disciples' lives, the Lord is trying to grow our faith. Faith is in many ways like a spiritual muscle. If you want to think about it this way, if I went to the gym and I picked up a five-pound dumbbell, it would strengthen my muscle, and I'm sure I would see some results in my arms, but if I were to increase the weight to, say, 15 or 20 pounds, my muscles would be tested more and more, and I would grow larger if I continued working out with those. Faith is our spiritual muscle. I don't know about you, but I... I noticed when I first got saved, it seems like a lot of my prayers were answered rather quickly, sometimes within the first or second time of praying about it. But the longer I've been a Christian, it seems that the less and less that's the case. And I think it's because that the Lord, if he always gave us what we wanted or asked for the first time we asked, our spiritual muscles would really not be tested much. It would be like us just sticking with the five-pound dumbbells all our life. If we, however, persist in prayer and we continue in faith, despite not immediately seeing the answers to our prayers, it causes our faith to grow more and more. And through this period where it seems like God's not answering right away, we realize that the Lord is actually working on strengthening and growing our faith so that we'll be able to trust him with bigger things in the future. Genuine faith says, God, I know that you are still able to do this, even though it's been months or even years that I've been praying about this. And even though I haven't seen immediate answer to my prayer request, I still trust you. Through a time where it seems like there's unanswered prayers, we realize that God allows us to go through a time of testing of our faith, and it's really for our benefits. Because it produces in us greater faith, greater dependency upon him. James 5.16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. There's a story told of George Mueller, who's a well-known man of faith, and George began to pray for the salvation of five of his friends. And after five years of prayer, one of them came to know Christ. Five more years had elapsed after that, and two more of his friends came to know Christ. Then 25 years passed, and finally the fourth man trusted in the Lord. And for the fifth friend, he prayed until the time he died. All in all, George prayed persistently for 52 years before God finally answered his lifelong prayer, and that fifth friend trusted the Lord just months after George's death. George had genuine faith that God could answer his prayers even after a half a century of waiting for the Lord to answer his prayers. And through his persistence, not only did George's faith grow, but he was also able to witness the mountain-moving power that faith can have when we fully trust in God's ability to answer our prayers that would otherwise be humanly impossible. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just we thank you for this passage that, Lord, reveals to us the power of faith, Lord, and we realize that, Lord, so often our our faith is mixed in with doubt, Lord, that we worry, we get anxious, we, we doubt, Lord, 
that you will provide or that you can do something in our lives. And yet, Lord, we realize that if we just genuinely put our faith in you, even the size of a mustard seed, we could see you move mountains in our lives. And Lord, we pray that we would grow in our faith, that we would strengthen in our faith as we walk with you, Lord, that we would be more and more dependent upon you. And that, Lord, even if we don't see the answer to our prayers right away, even if we don't necessarily uh, see you uh, answer it immediately, Lord, that we would continue in persistent prayer until, Lord, we see you answer our prayers. And, Lord, we, we just trust you and we pray that you would help us to grow in our faith and that we become more and more dependent upon you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.